0: You are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. The World Health Organization estimates that 250,000 women die each year from cancer of the cervix. It is the most common cancer in women living in impoverished countries. These women account for 80% of all cases worldwide. The new human papillomavirus vaccine is being hailed as a welcome primary preventive tool, and plans to inoculate females in third-world countries are already in the works. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Atlanta is my guest, Dr. Kevin Alt, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Emory University School of Medicine, and one of the authors of a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine on HPV vaccine. Welcome, Dr. Alt. Thank you, Dr. Alt. What is the distribution of cervical cancer worldwide?
1: There are certain hotspots, as you're alluding to, around the world. Uh, you don't have to go that far south to find one of them. Mexico is one of the places that has a very heavy burden of cervical cancer. South America, South Asia, Africa are also places where uh, there's plenty of cervical cancer, a much higher rate than. What we see in the United States, as you mentioned, is the second leading cause of cancer death for women worldwide. So certainly the common thread between most of those Areas that we mentioned are lack of access to pap smear or no organized pap smear screening.
0: And this is why women of third world countries are more at risk for cervical cancer?
1: Well, there's a lot of infrastructure that goes into pap smears, as you might imagine. Of course, you have to train people to obtain the specimen, and there's a quality control element there. You have to have pathologists and cytotechnicians that can read the pap smear, and you have to have some way to recall the patient for abnormals and so it's very expensive to start those programs from the ground up. And
0: the vaccine has been approved for use in many places around the world including the EU and Australia. What kinds of approval is necessary before using the vaccine in poor countries where the need is greatest?
1: Well, I think most of those countries have a have a process that's somewhat similar to the FDA type of process that we have here, so I, I don't know that governmental approval is a problem. I I think the problems with this particular vaccine, which are not insurmountable, are cold chain and the need for multiple doses. And that's probably going to be the biggest barrier to this vaccine.
0: So it's the practical concerns about the vaccine itself.
1: And the expense as well. This is a very expensive vaccine.
0: How are concerns about the high cost of the vaccine for poor countries being addressed?
1: Merck and GSK are both making versions of this vaccine, and they both entered into agreements with pharmaceutical companies and China and India to help bring the cost of the manufacturing of the vaccine down. And so that would be one way to get around this. There's also these non-governmental organizations such as PASS and the Gates Foundation involved in this, as well as the World Health Organization. And so given the magnitude of the problem that you mentioned, the deaths from cervical cancer, I think there's been a lot of action on this front right away and from a lot of different angles.
0: In a previous Clinician's Roundtable, I did an interview with Dr. Orrin Levine of Johns Hopkins, and we discussed a funding program called Advanced Market Commitment used to make the pneumococcal vaccine available in those poor countries. Is this the type of funding that's perhaps under consideration?
1: I certainly think that that's been an approach that, again, both these pharmaceutical companies have taken into account. I haven't heard that that particular program has been applied to this vaccine. But I think, you know, again, in countries that don't do a lot of screening, this has a lot of appeal. Again, we're talking about primary prevention, whereas a pap smear would be more secondary prevention, finding the established disease and treating it.
0: It seems like it would make sense there are a lot of similarities between those types of vaccines.
1: There has been some interesting innovations, and a lot of this has been published in JAMA and other medical journals about teaching people to do visual inspections and recognize pre-malignant changes using cryotherapy that That's not the way we usually do the pap smear business in the United States, but it's certainly interesting to think about. And those studies that have done that look quite promising. So I think there's been some innovation going on in the area of cervical cancer prior to the vaccine becoming available. So I, I think it's a very dynamic area.
0: The World Health Organization is fully behind the vaccine and has prompted prominent organizations such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to work toward making Gardasil available globally globally. Is there as much debate going on abroad as there is here in the U.S.?
1: I guess my impression is no, so that those countries that have approved the vaccine aren't quite going through the same angst that we seem to be going through um, in Europe. They have a very progressive attitude towards sex education, that type of thing, so I don't know that it's that big of an issue. And then in other countries, there's a much bigger cancer burden than what we have in the United States. You know, I don't know that it's been that big of an interest.
0: If you've just joined us, you are listening to Reach MD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Kevin Alt, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Emory University School of Medicine. And we are discussing worldwide use of the HPV vaccine. As you had mentioned, in less developed countries, effective yearly pap test screening programs are expensive and they're difficult to implement for a lot of reasons. What will be the contribution of the HPV vaccine when annual pap tests are not occurring?
1: Well, the vaccine as it's currently formulated, if you vaccinated a naive population, you would have the opportunity to reduce your cervical cancer rate about 70%. So typically for some of the worst countries, the rates are about 40 per 100,000 women. In the United States, it's about 8 per 100,000 women. So you, you could make a big dent just with a successful vaccine program.
0: The World Health Organization has predicted that the vaccine might be least effective in some parts of the world, most affected by cervical cancer, stating that expectations for prevention of cervical cancer would be 5% lower in Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa than it would be worldwide. What is the reason for the lower expectations of success in these parts of the world?
1: Well, I think at least two reasons. Some of those countries you mentioned, some of those regions have a very high existing burden of HPV, so if you look at age-adjusted prevalence in Latin America, it usually comes out higher In the United States, for example. So I think the other thing you have to keep in mind here in the background is that there's one of these syndemics is the term that I've heard used recently by the CDC that there's a synergy between human papillomavirus and HIV. So if you go into countries where HIV is prominent, immunosuppression is one of the most well-known risk factors for HPV going on to cervical cancer. We don't really know too many risk factors, but that's probably something else that's entering into the equation as well.
0: Mm, That's interesting. I wonder, though, if we can also talk about types of the virus. It it was predicted that the vaccine if it could include the seven most common HBV types worldwide, would prevent 87% of all cases of cervical cancer with little regional variation. In your opinion, is this a reasonable prediction, and would a future goal be to develop that type of vaccine for the world?
1: Well, I certainly think that that's a wonderful goal to include more types, and that's certainly the lowest hanging fruit. That would be the easiest way to get to that point. There's also been some interest in cross-protection. You know, Again, I'm a gynecologist, not a virologist, but I think that most of these dozen or type HPV fall into a category either being closely related to 16 or closely related to 18. And so you could either get some benefit from cross-protection or maybe you could re-engineer the vaccine a little bit to get more cross-protection and cover more types. The 70% from 16 and 18 is pretty consistent from region to region. It's the 30% that varies quite a bit from country to country and continent to continent.
0: So you would need to conduct trials country to country to see what you needed to target.
1: Well, I think that data is out there already. The the cancer research group of the World Health Organization has done a lot of those types of experiments. And so, and you were right when you said if you just add. A few more types, you're going to cover a majority of what's out there.
0: Here in the U.S., vaccine delivery is planned. It's hopeful that it'll be done during school immunizations. For countries with low school attendance and, and great poverty, I imagine the delivery method would need to be different.
1: Well, there was a nice article about that in the Lancet when some of this data first came out that talked about access of adolescents to health care in some of the most impoverished parts of the world. And I believe this article concentrated on Lancet. And I was surprised at the number of interactions there were between adolescents and healthcare providers, even in some of these countries. And so I think those authors... We're hopeful that that was not an insurmountable barrier to this vaccine or or a number of adolescent and adult vaccines that may be available or are currently available.
0: When you look at the U.S. compared to some of these poor countries, how do you think it's going to play out in terms of there being less controversy in other parts of the world and you have some of these heavy hitters willing to help fund the vaccine. And here in the U.S., we're working on programs to help with the funding, but there's also just this debate about whether young girls should have this vaccine or not.
1: I think, as I said, some of that debate will be overcome just by the fact that there's a much higher burden of cancer in these countries. Yeah, I think we also need to point out that if you just go back maybe to your grandparents' lifetime, 1940, let's say, Cervical cancer is the number one cause of cancer death among women in 1940 in the United States, so you don't really have to turn back the clock too awfully far, maybe two or three generations, and you'll run into some people who remember those rates in those days. So certainly, you know, the pap smear gained acceptance and we've reduced the rate 75%. And hopefully, you know, this vaccine will catch on and we'll work through some of these problems to get this vaccine to some of the worst parts of the world as far as cancer rates go.
0: Do you know if the people who are backing, are they interested in also vaccinating men?
1: Because men don 't suffer quite the same consequences it 's probably somewhat less cost effective to vaccinate men. However, even though I just said that, some of the countries that have very high rates of cervical cancer also have very high rates of penile cancer, such as Uganda, for example, has some of the highest rates of penile cancer. So I think you have to get into some pretty fine cost benefit type analysis if you 're the minister of Health in some of these countries but certainly Globally, I think you could say that women suffer the brunt of this STD as they do most STDs.
0: Well, there is a lot going on nationally and internationally regarding the HPV vaccine. It must be exciting to be part of this.
1: It certainly has been very exciting. You know, the first time I heard about this vaccine was about 10 years ago, the data from cottontail rabbits and dogs all looked very good. And so it was nice to be in on the ground floor. And I think the other thing that I've thought about quite a bit as as the research has gone on and my children have gotten older is how much different that generation was than that generation that was alive in 1940. 1940 was the year before Dr. Pepa published his paper about the pap smear. And so there was no hope for cervical cancer. There was no radiation therapy. There was no screening. There was no surgery in 1940. Then you fast forward three or four generations to my daughters and you have a vaccine preventable disease. So you've really gone full circle in several decades for this particular problem.
0: Right. Exciting changes in within even our lifetimes. Yes. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Kevin Alt, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Emory University School of Medicine. Thank you, Dr. Alt.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Dot .com Thank you for listening.